Greetings, greetings, and thank you all for coming out. It's exciting to see a packed crowd, uh, an overflow room for a topic that I think is probably one of the most pressing topics of our time. Um, it's the question of how we're going to solve global warming, how we're going to solve our energy crisis, how we're going to turn back the erosion of our manufacturing and construction job base and reinvest in people, reinvest in communities, and build the future that we want to live in. Um, it's really a creative task, it's a design task, and there are few people in the country today, really in the world today, who have taken as active a leadership role uh, in this question of building a green-collar economy uh, as Representative Hilda Solis and as Van Jones um, from, the, from Green for All. Um, and we're honored to have him here as a fellow at the Center for American Progress as well. I'm Bracken Hendricks, I'm a senior fellow here. Um, and I guess first I want to just turn the, the mic over to Congresswoman Solis. Um, she has rearranged her whole schedule and some very important meetings in order to be here, and uh, we're incredibly honored. And, and to my mind, it really shows her level of commitment for these issues. She has been uh, one of the leaders in Congress who's understood this connection of social equity, uh, community reinvestment, and and how green issues can create a new vision for the United States. Uh, whether it was introducing the Green Jobs Act, or uh, which she was a lead author and, and, uh, uh, of in the House of Representatives, uh, or whether it has been serving on the House Select Committee for Global Warming and Energy Independence, uh, or serving her third term now as the chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Task Force on Health and the Environment. She's in her fourth term in the uh, United States House of Representatives, representing uh, East Los Angeles uh, and the 32nd District of California. And she is someone who has understood these issues of a positive vision for environmental justice that puts the emphasis on justice and seeks to find out how to build that better future. So uh, the center is extremely pleased to have today with us, Congresswoman Hilda Solis. Thank you. Thank you and uh, buenos dias. <laughs> I'm glad that uh, I'm here with Van Jones and Bracken and, and everyone here who's been so supportive of this uh, concept. And I, I really just want to talk very briefly about uh, what my belief is and so strong, so strongly aligned with so many of you in the room here about helping to revitalize our communities. Um, to me, we're on this cusp of really changing uh, the way we think about manufacturing, the way we think about job creation, and the way we look at treating the environment. And in many, in many ways, uh, I believe this is the new industrial green revolution. And it's going to take a while for people to understand that, especially in communities that haven't traditionally benefited from uh, environmental movements. And I mean that in, in, in not in a sarcastic way, but to say that it's very important that people, people of color, underserved communities really have an opportunity to understand what it means to be able to have not only a good paying job, but to be able to work in a work setting that's clean, that is not going to be harmful to their health and to their detriment. So many uh, Americans, uh, I look at my own father's uh, previous career, who worked at a battery recycling plant. Not a great job, paid well, but nobody wanted the job. So he did it for 20 years, and now he's suffering from all kinds of health ailments because of contaminants, uh, toxins, and uh, no safety equipment at the time. 
But we've come a long way now. We've come a long way now. But there's still segments in our community that are still faced with no other options. And so I think it's time for us to really look at pieces of legislation like the Green Collar Jobs Act and really go fast forward and put money into that system so that we can really get started, hopefully, uh, in the next six months. And I'm told by, by, by my staff and other people in, um, that have been working on this issue that the Department of Labor could really begin to restructure the way that this program can be administered right now. So it doesn't take a lot more money. It just takes political will, and it really takes leadership from uh, members in Congress and the Senate, and of course, uh, with our new president-elect. And I understand that he's going to be very supportive of the, the entire concept of greening our buildings, greening our infrastructure, and creating these jobs that, by golly, are not going to have to be outsourced. And to me, that is probably the most uh, important aspect of green-collar jobs, that we can sell that notion that we don't have to create the technology and then sell those jobs to other countries, which is fine, which is, you know, that's probably something we need to do in, in some third world areas. However, um, I think that there also has to be a reckoning that we have forgotten the very basics of who we are here in America, and that's folks that have worked very, very hard to have a better life here in the United States. And that has crept away from us. We lost many jobs in, in uh, trade agreements that I haven't always favored. But I'm just saying that there's a better way to take care of our country, a better way to take care of our economy. And that's by making those investments, even if it starts out with tax credits, allowing for investments by venture capitalists to begin to plan out in the next 5, 10, and 20 years these uh, business opportunities that will stay here, that will sustain communities like mine in East Los Angeles, where right now we're plagued with warehouses that are empty. Uh, there's no manufacturing really going on. Uh, many of those jobs have left uh, our community and actually gone south to either Mexico or now farther out to China. And there, there is no return there. So we have to somehow come back into the community and say we're going to restructure uh, our workforce and we're going to provide training and opportunities for people who need it and want it. And I'm just going to share something very basic with you. In my district, there's a, a community um, school. It's, it's viewed as kind of a, I want to say, a vocational, vocational school for adults. Um, I visited there about two years ago. And it's called the East L.A. Skill Center in the heart of East L.A. Poverty-stricken, crime-ridden, schools are falling apart. But you go into this old building that looks about 70 or 80 years old, and you walk into their classrooms. It's a big classroom, maybe this size, and you see a number of adults, people that maybe are going on their second a career change. And they're there because they want to learn how to become uh, instruments of change and getting into these new green-collar jobs and knowing mathematically all the designs and computations and not even having, uh, say, uh, beyond a GED degree. It's, it's, it's a possibility for our communities to be engaged, I think, in, in this revolution that's really going to change the way that not only doing business, but inspiring and empowering people to go out and do something different. I met a gentleman who had worked for 20 years, an older uh, Hispanic man who worked for like 20 years in LA Unified School District as a custodian. And his, his English was somewhat broken. I talked to him and I said, what brought you here? He said, the fact 
that now I can retire from my job, but come here and have the potential of starting my own business and starting to make upwards of 60, 80, maybe even $100,000 because the job demand is there. And he was there with his daughter who is an adult. So to me, I, I saw that reflected in a lot of the faces in that classroom. And it inspired me even more to bring more people to come out and see what I am seeing as a member of Congress. And we have a lot of work to do because there's not a lot of members in the, in the House of Representatives, in my, in my opinion, that fully understand and grasp this concept. And it's a very easy con concept to grasp. It's about investing in human capital, and it's making sure that there are streams and revenues that go to our states, our, our county governments, and also uh, working in areas that can benefit because they, are, because they are stricken with high levels of poverty. And we have an underserved community out there that is, I believe, ready to go and prepared, but we, ha we have to give them those tools and an opportunity to be challenged. So I feel very, you know, very excited about the potential that we can see a restructuring occurring uh, right away, but we're gonna need advocates out in the community to help us make sure that every community is not left behind in this green revolution. That's the scariest part, I think, for people uh, where I come from because they've always been told, oh yes, there's gonna be these new programs coming out, they're going to help lift everybody up, and then for some reason they never come to our communities. Well, here's a way where you don't have to invest a whole lot of money to build up a whole infrastructure, it's there. It's just plugging it in and making sure that we can make those changes. And having people that are qualified, that are caring, and that want to make an investment themselves in our communities. I can see a potential for many mid-sized businesses starting up in East Los Angeles, in the city of El Monte where I live, and in other places. And I've had a lot of people already tell me, even foreigners that are saying, I really like this idea of, of uh, creating these jobs. How do I get involved in it? Because I want to produce some of these uh, pieces of equipment abroad. And I'm saying, well, that's fine, but my priority is here. And why don't you hire our people here? And uh, we can talk about it. So um, that's where I'm coming from. I just want to tell you how proud I am to have been a part of this uh, small movement. And I know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take hold and we have to be ready for it. It's like a wave, a tsunami that's coming, and we have to be prepared for it. There's a lot of young people out there who are, who are um, pleading with us to make some changes in the way that we uh, look at the future in a clean way, uh, going to school in clean buildings, using transportation, using other sources of energy to get from place to place, um, and all of it can be made possible. Um, if, we, if we just kind of dare to dream and, and kind of challenge ourselves. So thank you very much for inviting me. I apologize that I can't stay for questions. We have a very important vote that's going on right now in our House Democratic Caucus, and believe me, I don't want to miss that. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you, Van Jones, and thank, thank all of you. Again, thanks to Congresswoman Solis and to uh, Megan and Sonia, who are her uh, extremely skilled staff. And I think uh, a lot of this is the leadership that's possible is possible because of um, this really is a growing movement. And there are a lot of people uh, behind every uh, effort in this direction. Um, let's see. 
I've introduced Congresswoman Solis. Now I just want to take a minute and introduce someone who is um, not only an important thinker in this area, but also a, a very dear friend and a colleague. Um, I think you're going to appreciate uh, the kind of clarity and incisiveness that Van can bring to this, uh, to this challenge of how we actually imagine a better future. Um, and he's got a lot of experience in it. Um, I can attest to the fact that he not only can light up a room and draw incredible crowds out to hear what he has to say, but when you're actually trying to figure out solutions to a problem, he also has the same kind of incisiveness of boring down to what really matters. And let's cut to the chase. What are the core issues here? And I think that's the kind of analysis that he's applying to some of the, the naughtiest problems, some of the deepest structural problems in our economy today. Um, so Van Jones is the... Uh, he is the founder and uh, now the president of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Uh, they're based in Oakland, California. Um, and they started a campaign called Books Not Bars um, that was an effort to uh, invest in young people rather than locking them away and keep, to keep them out of trouble. Uh, uh, he actually fought a campaign through Books Not Bars to invest in education that actually lowered overall youth prison population in California by 30 percent. Um, and they, he helped to block the construction of a costly and controversial super jail for youth near Oakland. And it's these kind of questions about where we put our investments, where we put our resources, what future do we want to build that I think that exposes. Hopefully today uh, we're going to be talking in a great deal more depth about his book, The Green Collar Economy, how one solution can fix our two biggest problems. Uh, this is the first uh, New York Times bestseller uh, about the environment by an African-American author. Uh, this is big. It, it's a transformation about who's talking about the environment, not only about how we talk about the environment. And I think it's going to lead to a, a very different kind of structural conversation. So uh, we also at the center have been very pleased to support uh, Van's vision, working with Majora Carter to create uh, an organization called Green for All. Um, and it's, it's really profoundly reimagining both civil rights, social justice, environmental justice, and the climate movement uh, in real time as we speak. Uh, and we're very honored to have him here as a fellow at the Center for American Progress as well. So I won't talk anymore, and I'll let, let Van do some talking. Thanks for coming. Hey, y'all. Hey. Thanks for coming. Um, so I'm just going to sit here and talk. I bet he's got some questions for me. Make it easy on me. Um, and I think, I think just in terms of a, a little bit of structural kind of housekeeping, um, we're going to, I think, just kind of engage in some discussion uh, mm -hmm. for a, a little bit, and then uh, we'll do some question and answer. Um, so I, I guess first off, I just want to kind of start off with just a little bit of reflection about the moment that we're in. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, Did something happen? <laughs> <laughs> a couple things happened. The, the global uh, financial <laughs> system seems to be in a little trouble right now. Yeah. 1.2 million jobs lost, 6.5% unemployment, mm -hmm. uh, new housing 31% below where it was a year ago. The automobile industry is collapsing around us. Um, why do you have hope? <laughs> and why does the environment have anything yeah. to do with this? Well, um, well, first of all, I think what we have to, to recognize is that, that there are two things happening at the same time. Uh, the floor has been torn out from under the American people. Uh, that's the bad news. Uh, the, the, the floor has been torn out. Um, we're in this economic crisis. You know, I was, a lot of us were crying tears of joy um, with the presidential election. Anybody crying tears 
Anybody, anybody embarrass your, your children slinging on? Yeah. My, my four-year-old was like, Daddy, Daddy, you know, quit hugging me and slobbing on me on election night, you know. Um, we were crying tears of joy, but people were also, the Tuesday prior, crying tears of grief, of fear, and the Tuesday before that, and the Tuesday since, um, because the, the floor has been torn out from under the American people. People are losing their jobs, their homes, uh, their pensions, 401ks. Um, but I know from my personal life, sometimes something really bad has to happen before something really good can happen. Uh, it's when you get that bad diagnosis. It's when you get dumped or fired or, or, or failed that test that you have to look at yourself and figure out, what am I going to do now? And we're at that moment. Uh, the floor has been torn out from under us, but sometimes a breakdown can lead to a breakthrough. And the, uh, the other thing that's happening is that people got up from those kitchen tables where they were crying and worrying, and they marched into the voting booth. And they gave uh, President-elect uh, now Barack Obama the mandate to take the ceiling off, too. Okay, so the floor is gone, but the ceiling is gone, too. So we're free as a country to fall or to fly. It's up to us. Um, that funny feeling you've been having for the past couple of weeks since the election is called freedom, okay? That's what that is. Uh, welcome to your new, sorry about that, welcome to the new reality. We can fall or fly. The question is, how do we fly? Um, the reason we were falling was because for at least the past 30 years, we've had an economic model in this country um, that was by definition not sustainable. It was going to have to come to an end. What was that model? Three features of it. We would have, product, we would have consumption, not production be the main feature of the United States. The U.S. is the most important economy in the world, not because we're the producers, but because we're the consumers, right? So we would be, we don't, you know, we'd send all the production overseas, send the factories overseas. We'll just keep the malls, the strip malls, you know, the Walmarts, and somehow this is going to last forever. Um, so that was the number one problem. Number two, the idea that we could run the economy forever based on debt and not smart savings and thrift like our grandparents. Um, I don't care who you are, if your grandmama were to come back and see your credit card statement versus your savings account, you would be in timeout and you would be in trouble <laughs> because that's not, this is a new thing uh, that we just kind of build the economy up on credit cards. But, you know, the idea that we could build the economy based on borrowing and not building, uh, based on credit and not creativity, and, and, and frankly, overseas credit and not U.S. creativity. That was a fallacy. <clears throat> and then lastly, the idea that we could run the economy based on environmental destruction, not environmental restoration. That defines the economy that just collapsed. Uh, Consumption-based, debt-based, environmentally destruct destructive and heedless. That is the economy that just collapsed. But its reverse is the economy that we now get to build. That is the green-collar economy based on production, uh, based on thrift and based on environmental restoration. We now have to figure out what are we going to build here in this country to power our way through this recession um, and to have a real recovery. And the one thing that we can produce is clean energy. Uh, we have a Saudi Arabia of wind energy in this country. Uh, we have a Saudi Arabia of solar energy in this country. The challenge for the next 10 years is to connect our clean energy power centers 
to our population centers and run this country on clean energy. That is a, that is a big 10-year challenge. Uh, and, you know, uh, President-elect Obama, uh, when he stood there in front of everybody, I know you couldn't hear him because he was sobbing. Uh, you had to go back and get the transcript because you were crying so bad. But he, he actually gave you some bad news when he stood up there. Uh, he said, this is not change. This is the chance for change. This is the chance for change. And so those of us in this room now have to deliver on the promise. And delivering on the promise means we have to find a new locomotive for the U.S. economy, a new cornerstone for the U.S. economy. We cannot build, continue trying to build the U.S. economy up on credit cards. We've got to build it on solar panels, on wind turbines, on retrofitting and weatherizing millions of buildings, on uh, water conservation, on all those things that are productive. And the last thing I'll say is this. Somehow, we got confused, and I don't know who was responsible, if, you, if it was you, raise your hand so we can boo you, uh, that we were going to have the environmental conversation over here and the economic conversation over there. And everything that is good for the everything that's good for the environment, everything that's needed to beat global warming is a job. Everything that's good for the environment is a job. Solar panels don't manufacture themselves. Uh, wind turbines don't manufacture themselves. Homes don't weatherize themselves. Every single thing that we need to beat global warming will also beat the recession. And the challenge is how do we get government to be uh, a smart and limited catalyst in getting the, the private sector to take on this challenge. And that, and that is uh, going to require uh, a few ideas, some of which are in the book. Uh, uh, Bracken is certainly as articulate about them as anybody in American politics. But that is the challenge, to, to uh, power our way through this recession by repowering the country with clean energy. Retrofit America, repower America, put people to work, um, get the private capital to do it, have the government be a smart, limited partner in it so we can unleash technology, unleash innovation. And um, uh, uh, I'm excited, um, but also a little bit intimidated about the fact that we actually now have people expecting us to deliver, and we don't have that funny guy from Texas to kick around so much anymore. But let, let, me, let me follow up on this, because I think yeah. it's a good place to go deeper. One of the things in your book is you, kinda, you tell stories, and you make this pretty concrete. Yeah. And it's easy to talk about this as soaring rhetoric. Sure or as some sort of you know, macroeconomic proposition, mm -hmm. but it does come down to bricks and mortar, people's lives, real communities. Can you just tell, you know, as you've been doing this work over the past few years, mm -hmm. um, and as you're trying to lay out what a real agenda is, sure. what does it look like? What are some of the examples that make it real to you? Great. I mean, uh, there are programs in this country that are already underway. Uh, they're going up against, they're going against gravity. Uh, the, uh, the government still is on the side of the problem. Makers not the problem solvers. But you take a program like uh, Green Corps in Chicago or Green Cap in Newark or Solar Richmond in Richmond, California or the Seattle Vocational Institute in Seattle where low-income folks, uh, mostly people of color, some of which have had a, uh, maybe a criminal conviction, uh, and they're trying to find their way into the green economy. They go to these places and they get trained. The training programs uh, are, you know, it's not rocket science, uh, but it's skilled labor to install a solar panel. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, but you could, you could crush the roof. You could burn the house down. I mean, this, you know, you're dealing with electricity. 
Um, and so there's, there's training involved. Uh, but they go, they get the training. Uh, 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 a lot of the, what they call uh, horticultural infrastructure in terms of, you know, with fancy way of saying planting trees, <laughs> you know, taking care of trees, greening our communities, all that's work and it's skilled work. And, uh, and they are now joining the workforce. The challenge that we have is to make sure that there are enough jobs for folks like that. See, my view of a green economy is an economy where we don't have any throwaway resources, we don't have any throwaway species, but we also don't have any throwaway people or throwaway neighborhoods or throwaway children either, that we see it all as precious. And so it's not just going to be about rec uh, reclaiming thrown away stuff. We need to reclaim some thrown away lives and give people second chances and opportunities to participate. And so there are programs that exist to, to train people up. Now, we're putting forward a very concrete, again, people accuse me of, uh, of, of being very pragmatic about this, uh, about this stuff. Uh, and it's because I can't walk around in the neighborhood just selling people fancy rhetoric. Uh, you, know, we, you know, they can go to church on Sunday for that, and people do it better than I do in church. So we actually have to deliver on stuff. Uh, we have a proposal called the Clean Energy Corps that um, uh, work with Bracken and others to put forward. The idea is the low-hanging fruit for carbon reduction and job creation is to retrofit America, to weatherize and energy retrofit millions and millions of buildings. Let me explain why that's a good idea, and then let me explain how we can pay for it, which is, again, pragmatically uh, the issue of the day. First of all, let me, let me tell you, the, 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 the punchline is, everything I'm about to tell you pays for itself. We can do it revenue neutral. I'll get to that. But let me tell you what we can do. Uh, with this idea of a Clean Energy Corps proposal, which combines green service with green job training with green jobs, catalyzing green jobs, we can give people the tools, training technology, and unleash them to start weatherizing buildings. You say, what does that have to do with the green economy? I thought the green economy with some like George Jetson space age Buck Rogers jobs. What does this have to do, what does weatherizing buildings have to do with the green economy? Well, let me tell you, the number one piece of technology in the first round of building a green economy uh, is not gonna be some space age, you know, laser solar, you know, thing. It's gonna be a caulk gun, a caulk gun, all right? We have off the shelf technology right now that can reduce energy demand in all of these buildings that, that we have across this country, 20%, 30%, even 50% with off-the-shelf technology. What are you talking about? You're talking about putting people to work, blowing in clean, non-toxic insulation so that the house doesn't leak so much energy. Double-painting glass so that those windows don't rattle in the pane and leak so much energy. Why is that important? Because drafty buildings have, create cold, chilly people, but they create a hot, overheated planet because those coal-fired power plants have to work overtime trying to heat and cool those inefficient buildings. So when you shrink that energy envelope and those buildings are now using less energy, guess what? You just reduce your carbon emissions by 20%, 30%, 50% with off-the-shelf technology. And it gets better than that. When you're putting people to work in those jobs, those are, those are good paying jobs. Uh, some of them are on the, your way to becoming an electrician or on your way to becoming a glazer. 
or on your way to becoming a carpenter, you can actually join a union in those jobs. Now, we're not doing that so much in the residential sector, but we can imagine ourselves even growing the labor movement to become greener, more inclusive, more relevant to struggling communities uh, with this work. But it gets better than that. If you weatherize and retrofit enough buildings, you bring down aggregate demand for energy, which means you bring down the price of energy throughout the economy, okay? Uh, you bring up home values. You bring down asthma because those peaker plants don't have to work so hard. So you're improving the air quality, right? Um, gets better than that. And it pays for itself. You get jobs going up. You get energy prices going down. You get global warming uh, gases going down. You get asthma going down. And it pays for itself. McKinsey produced a study that shows that the work that you do to retrofit or weatherize the building will pay for itself in energy cost savings in just two to four years. In just two to four years. Now, bad creative financing got us into a whole lot of trouble. But some good creative financing should allow us to do this work. We're calling for a revolving loan fund uh, to be at the center of this idea of a clean energy core where cities and universities and, and big hospitals can go and borrow those, money, th those dollars, do all this work, get people working right now, and then pay it back um, uh, out of their energy cost savings. Now, uh, you can probably leverage that because you're probably going to get a better and more certain return doing that, frankly, than on Wall Street right now. But you have all these people in the country right now who need work. You have your construction <coughs> workers who are idle. And they're going to be idle for 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. Right? They're not going to be able to build anything conceivably. Well, let them rebuild everything. Right? Let's be smart enough as a country. We have people coming home from wars, coming home from prison, coming out of high schools with no job prospects whatsoever. Okay? And these are the people who desperately need work. And this work of retrofitting America, this is before we even get to the clean energy stuff and all the R&D and all the other stuff and making Detroit different. Just the work of deploying off-the-shelf technology and, 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 and workers right now who don't have jobs would let us connect the people who most need work with the work that most needs to be done, okay? Fight pollution and poverty at the same time. Beat the recession and global warming at the same time. Now that is practical, it's doable, it pays for itself, and you get a chance to see people putting on green hard hats and work boots and getting a lunch bucket and going out the door to fix America. Now, if we can't deliver on that, right, uh, I mean, that's the hope. You know, uh, President-elect Obama says he wants five million green jobs. Uh, uh, Bracken and others here at the Center for, for American Progress have shown that for a measly hundred billion dollars, which used to sound like a whole lot of money, <coughs> Now it sounds like a rounding error, you know? He's like, hey, hundred billion, give me four of those, you know? No big deal. For a measly hundred billion dollars, we can have two million green jobs in two years, and not just on the retrofit side, which also which begins to pay for itself, but unleashing uh, clean energy technologies. Um, there are smart things the government can do with regard to federal loan guarantees and other stuff we can get into, but it's, 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 it's brass tax time now. It's time for us to get serious. We've talked about this for a long time. Uh, we have an opportunity, and I think we should go for it. 
I'm, I'm excited. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for the green economy. Yeah, yeah. I, we need to figure out how to get there now. Yeah. Um, as you're talking, one of the things that I found really um, important in the book, in your story, in, in your bio, it's really clear how this body of work that you're talking about now has a very strong link back to community organizing, to your social justice work. Yeah. You also talk about some interesting history uh, in the environmental movement and the journey that the environmental movement has taken um, and how this is kind of a next evolution in a whole series of ways of thinking about, about natural systems and, and protection of them. Um, I'd love to just, I think it would be useful for the conversation today. Sure. Well, I mean, we, we, we owe a lot to the environmental movement as it's unfolded. Um, uh, we have this challenge, though, of holding that history in an honest way. Uh, the good news is that uh, because of the conservation movement, which is really the first wave of environmentalism, uh, our country didn't pave everything, right? There, uh, you know, there are uh, critters and uh, species that would only be pictures in a history book that are actually in the world today because of our conservation movement in this country. And that's a huge achievement. Um, at the same time, that movement, they weren't the first conservationists, obviously. Uh, the Native Americans, uh, who actually held this continent in pretty good trust for about 10,000 years, were the true conservationists. I mean, that's a huge feat to have a, a fully populated continent that looked the way this place looked when uh, the Europeans arrived. I mean, a, a squirrel could climb, climb a tree at the Atlantic Ocean and go branch to branch to branch to the Mississippi River, okay, uh, just a short time ago. Uh, you know, when birds would fly south for the winter, it would blot out the sun. I mean, it would sound like thunder, okay? So, that I mean, now that is conservation. And as we, as we honor that first wave, we want to honor all of the conservation efforts, including those, that 10,000 years of conservation efforts. But that was the first wave, and it was an important wave. And it was beautiful. Why? Because it was about, let, let's preserve our natural past, the heritage of, our, heritage of our natural past. But then we had a second wave, and the second wave was a regulation wave which says, hey, it's not just about creeks and critters and that kind of stuff, it's also about human health effects. And uh, in the 60s and 70s, people said, hey, listen, you know, we gotta, you know, we're poisoning our, our children with this stuff. We're gonna have to regulate the industrial present. Love the natural past, keep that, but we also gotta regulate the industrial present. Huge moment in American democracy. But there was a blind spot in that moment. And we didn't pay, pay enough attention to vulnerable people, poor people people of color. <clears throat> and it began to look like, by the time we get to the 1980s, that the mainstream white environmental organizations and the big white polluters were some, almost subconsciously conspiring to put all the dumps in the poor communities. Uh, all the poison, all the incinerators all started, you're, you're regulating it, but you're regulating it in a way that's not fair. And so then you had a new movement come up in the regulatory period that's ca called environmental justice. They said, hey, wait hold a second. Uh, regulate this stuff, but why should our children, who are African American, who are Latino, who are Native American, who are poor folks uh, of all different colors, why should we have to bear the brunt? Why should our children have to have the asthma and the cancer and the learning disabilities? Regulate, yes, but do it with justice. Do it with equity. Do it fairly. And 
That lesson now as we move forward into this third wave has to be held on to. Because what it means is even when we mean to do good, if we don't have everybody at the table, if we aren't thinking about everybody, if we aren't figuring out how is this going to affect you, how is it going to affect you, what do you need, what do you need, even when we mean to do good, we can do bad. So those lessons help us now. Because this third wave of, of environmentalism is a very special thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because it says, yes, let's conserve uh, the bounty of our natural past. Yes. And let's regulate some of the problems in our industrial present and do that with fairness. But let's also invest in the solutions of the future. And once you're talking about an agenda that's about investment, you're talking about an agenda that, that's about opportunity, about entrepreneurship, about innovation, then you get to bring people together in a whole different way. Now we're not bickering about the past or trying to you know, carve up harms in the future. We're trying to figure out how our kids are going to live. And what we're saying is that this new investment wave, where we actually can have public, private, par and community partnerships to completely transform how we do energy, how we do water, how we do food systems, how we deal with our built environment, how we deal with waste, that is the big reset button. And what we're saying is, let's create this green wave in a way that it lifts all boats. We cannot drill and burn our way out of our energy problems, but we can invent and invest our way out. That we can do. And if you add one more I, include, invent, invest, and include, right. then you can build a green economy that Dr. King would be proud of. See, that's what, see, we can't blame our grandparents. If we wind up building a green economy that looks like eco-apartheid, right, where you have ecological haves and ecological have-nots, you have to have a whole lot of money uh, in order to get the healthy food, you got to be able to go to Whole Foods. Anybody ever been to Whole Foods? Did you have any money when you came out? No, you didn't. Because you got to have a lot of money. That's what we call it whole paycheck. Uh, you can't go to Whole Foods. You come out with one strawberry, and you'd be healthy and hungry. You know? so, so if we wind up in a society where we haven't figured out how to get that healthy food to the communities that really need it, with farmers markets and community gardening, that kind of stuff, that's on us. We can't blame Grandpa pa for that one. That's on us. If, you, if the only way for you to be in a clean, efficient vehicle is if you can buy a hybrid, but that brother's struggling for bus fare, has to cough in the fumes of the last century's pollution-based economy, that's on us. So we have the opportunity to now go for the full thing, eco-equity, uh, where we share the burdens and the benefits broadly of this transition to a clean, green economy. We share the risk and the rewards, and we get to rebuild America together in a way that honors the earth, right? In a way that honors our sister and brother species, and in a way that honors our sisters and brothers. See, that is the big opportunity here. And that's the vision, that's the soaring rhetoric, but it has to then be translated into policy and into actual on the ground change. And we've got proposals now uh, coming out of Center for American Progress, coming out of Green for All, coming out of One Sky, coming out of Al Gore's shop, the Alliance for Climate Protection, coming out of the Apollo Alliance, coming out of the Blue-Green Alliance. There are, there are, this stuff has been thought through. Uh, we've, we've kicked the tires on it. We've popped the hood. We believe that we've got the potential for a, an economic renaissance in this country that can also redeem the soul of America. And that's, I think, what we should be shooting for. Let me just, uh, <coughs> shall we open it up for... Uh for conversation to do, um, if anyone has questions, if first, if there are any reporters, um, we have a, a tradition of, of 
opening up with questions from from a couple of reporters, and then. Uh, but this is obviously everybody's conversation, so. Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Young. I work for a public radio program called Living on Earth. Hi. Hey. Um, good to see you again. Um, on the uh, notion of uh, equity, I'm curious about coal. I grew up in a coal mining region in West mm. Virginia. Um, these are the guys who powered the Industrial Revolution and That's right. powered the war machine that defeated fascism and mm. still provide power for every other light switch that comes on in this country, roughly, 50% of the electricity. Mm. Um, how do we? Do we transition away from coal, mm -hmm. or do we try to green coal too? Mm -hmm. If we transition away from coal, and forgive me for using transition as a verb, I hate that, mm -hmm. um, how do we do that fairly, and how do yeah. we see to it that these people uh, are, are honored for what they contributed in the past, and that the regions uh, that they support uh, continue to, well, get along anyway? Well, well, first of all, I think, I think it's, it's important. I, I grew up in Tennessee, so uh, on the other end of the, of the state, but you know, uh, uh, I think that we, have to say to our coal miners, there are 150,000 people who power America with coal. And I have to think we have to say to those workers, uh, thank you. Uh, they have, they're, they're heroes. Uh, they have sacrificed their lungs to power this country. Uh, they've sacrificed their health. And now, to I say our everlasting shame, we're asking them to blow up their grandmother's mountains with mountaintop removal and destroy forever uh, some of the beauty of America to keep powering America the same way. And I think it's unfair uh, to expect to turn uh, coal country into a sacrifice zone, uh, forever losing that, that, that culture, forever losing uh, the, the, those, uh, I mean, you know, you're from there, you know how beautiful. That's, that's some of the most you know, beautiful uh, real estate in the world. I think it's wrong for us to expect them to blow up their grandmother's mountains to keep going the same way. Uh, I think uh, uh, the number one item as we transition to a low carbon economy has to be a just transition for them. Now some of them may want a second career, some of them may want to, to do other, they may want to be a part of the new energy sector, they may want to you know, go into business for themselves. I mean, we should retire them though with honor. I mean I think we should, it should be a budget item. Uh, 150,000 people, how do we make sure that none of them wind up worse off? in the clean energy economy, even if we have to literally write them a check as retirees. Having said that, as we honor them and let them stand down, uh, we have to begin to stand, to stand up the other parts of the energy, uh, of, of our, of our uh, other sectors of the, of the energy in this community. Uh, energy, I'm sorry, I got what you call red eye brain. <laughs> I got blue in here on a red eye. But we have to let the other parts of the energy sector stand up. Now, I'm controversial on this point. And I'm not speaking for Center for American Progress, and I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm speaking for Green for All and for myself on this point. But I am not a fan of this idea of clean coal. And I'll tell you why. Um, I'm not, not trying to play to the crowd, but I'm just, just speaking honestly. I'm not a fan of the idea of clean coal. Uh, and because as best I can tell, and I've looked at this, as best I can tell, clean coal represents a tremendous breakthrough in the marketing of coal. But it doesn't represent a breakthrough in the burning of coal. And so far, every proposal that I've seen, and I've, you know, I've gone to UC uh, Berkeley to talk to the people who are the, the real champions of this stuff, it seems very far-fetched that we're going to be able to have what they call geological sequestration, which sounds painful. But don't worry about it, guys. That's not what it is. It's something. It's, it's, it's a fancy word 
for big holes in the ground. Uh, that's you know geological sequestration. You're going to take all the carbon out and you're going to stick it in big holes in the ground. Speaking for myself, it's, as best I can tell, there's just not that many big holes in the ground. I mean, I'm walking around here, I don't see them. And when you look at a place, and there's one place where there are no big holes in the ground, it's called India, where you've got, it was mostly, that's mostly volcanic rock. And you have 1.2 billion, soon to be 1.5 billion people. They're never going to be able to do geological sequestration. Um, so you're going to have to have a clean energy revolution for them, because they, they could cook the planet by themselves. So you're going to have to figure out a, a, a solution for them that doesn't involve coal anyway. You may as well do it for the whole world. Um, you know, I sometimes get frustrated. I say, listen, you know, as long as we're talking about clean coal, I've got some proposals. All right? We could go with clean coal, or we could have unicorns pull our cars for us, you know? That, that would be a good, you know? Or the tooth fairy could come and bring us our energy at night, you know, and we could just have it in the morning. I mean, at a certain point, fantasy fuels distract us from the real R&D agenda. Let me tell you what, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, this is what I think the real R&D agenda is. We do have a big R&D challenge here in transmission and storage of energy. That is the problem. Yes, you have a, a Saudi Arabia of wind energy, but if you try to use these old power lines you see around here to get that energy from the middle of the country to Washington, D.C., you won't have one electron that can make it that far on our existing uh, uh, transmission uh, technology. Because before it wasn't that important. You know, energy was kind of cheap and abundant. You didn't have to have super efficient transmission. Now you do. And our battery technology is not up to speed. So we need a massive Apollo Manhattan project on, on energy storage and on energy trans transmission. But if you do that, you get something pretty extraordinary. And I just want to make the pitch for it. You have the ability then to create a national clean energy smart grid. That's the game changer. Not drill baby drill and spill baby spill and all that other stuff and giving, you know, spending the next 10 years to give us slick and slimy beaches and maybe a two penny drop in gas prices. So instead of paying $10 a gallon, you'll be paying $9.98 a gallon. No, not that. Not that 10 years. But 10 years it says, guess what? Now, we can have a clean energy smart grid. Every home has a two-way meter. Everybody gets to be a producer. You can put a solar panel on your house, you can put a windmill, a wind turbine in the back, and you can sell into the grid as well as buy from it. Now everybody gets to be an energy producer, and our, you know, the, 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 the real clean energy power centers get a chance to power this country. Now, you say, that sounds great and sounds like hooey because it costs too much and we can't do it. And I'm going to say, au contraire, mon frère. <laughs> I said with Southern accent, yeah. see, I'm getting busy. I was doing my tapes at night. Um, I'm going to say, we've already done it twice. We've already done this twice. See, we used to have, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll prove my case. We used to have a country, allegedly, but you couldn't drive across it. Because all we had was a bunch of old rural, rural roads, dirt roads. Somebody in the name of national security said, well, hold on a second. What if we get invaded on the West Coast? How can we get troops and personnel from the East Coast? So in the name of national security, we created an interstate highway system that connected the country to itself so we could move uh, vehicles and bodies around. Oh, it costs too much money. We can't afford to do this. This is, this is insane. 
You couldn't afford not to do it. Because the minute you did that, you could move goods around and the economy went through the roof. Such a good idea, we did it again. Uh, in the name of national security, people at the Pentagon said, well, if we have one big communications tower, right, and somebody knocks it down, then we're, we're blind, deaf, and dumb. We, we, we've got to figure out a way to distribute our information uh, uh, system in this country. So they came up with an idea called the information superhighway to connect the country to itself, to move data and information around. For you young people, that's now what we call the internet, right? But it used to be called the information superhighway. You know, this is a boondoggle. We can't afford to do this. This is just pork barrel. We can't. Couldn't afford not to do it. The minute we connected the country to itself, the economy went through the roof. All we're saying is let's do it again. And this time, instead of connecting the country to itself to move bodies and vehicles around or to move data and information around, let's connect the country to itself so we can move clean energy electrons around. Let everybody be a producer, right? Have, focus our R&D on that, and then you've got the strongest economy in the world. You're no longer on the bucking bronco of oil prices. You're no longer having to fight anybody for oil, and you can share and sell that with the rest of the world. I'd rather do that than ask people to keep blowing up their grandmother's mountains so we can have a fantasy fuel called clean coal. I just, that's just speaking for myself, not for American progress. And let me, just, let me just speak to that for one second, too, because one of the things that um, Van talks about in the book is kind of getting away from binary, so, binary uh, arguments mm -hmm. where you have ecology versus social justice, mm -hmm. where you have business versus activism, where you have inner change versus outer change, spirituality versus political activism. Um, what, and, and in that, you also talk about a movement. If, if I just can encapsulate, you talk about yeah. moving from issues to solutions, from mm -hmm. demands to goals, from targets to partners, from accusations to confessions, and from cheap patriotism to deep patriotism. And in all of those, you're moving away from a very narrowly defined but highly conflicted set of fights around limited resources to shared commitment to pursuing a vision that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think the clean coal debate is a very good place to go. I think that there are some very legitimate views on dealing with the carbon and coal. Mm -hmm. I think there's some very legitimate and deep mm -hmm. concerns that you've articulated extremely well about protecting communities and social justice. When you got through the fight over coal, if we can have a fight over coal, we're not talking about the real long-term solutions. When you, when you went through and you started talking about energy efficiency, distributed generation, rewiring the grid, radically transforming the way we produce and use energy, suddenly that was a vision that just aligns mm -hmm. people regardless of, of, of their positions. And, I, and mm -hmm. I think that there's a through line in the green collar economy about taking a, a deeply held and deeply divided fight and then turning it into a source for unity and, and uh, activism. So. Hi, my name is Saki Ibrahim. I'm a reporter with uh, Climate Wire. Nice to meet you, Mr. Jones. Um, so you referred to the importance of smart and limited government programs as having uh, a catalyzing potential for starting these new jobs. Could you point to what are some model programs um, you've seen in the past that have had such uh, that kind of success? Um, I mean, I think that, that for me, the main role that I would like to see the government do is to stop paying polluters and asking the polluters now to pay. That's, a, that's the, the big shift, is that right now we have a, we, we're doing a triple subsidy for um, 
for, for instance, for oil. Uh, we give them a lot of direct support. Uh, the Pentagon has to police all their supply lines. We let them pollute for free. You can't pollute for free. I mean, if you walk out here right now and you throw a gum wrapper on the ground, a police officer sees you, they're going to stop you. They're going to give you a fine. Why? You're going to say, you can't pollute for free. You say, well, my name is Exxon, you know, my name is Chevron. <laughs> you know, oh, well, go ahead, right? Because those companies can still put up megatons of carbon for free. And that's the most dangerous pollution in the world. So what we're saying is that the minute that the government says, you know, through the cap and, and uh, a trade system or, or any other way to get value on carbon, that you have to uh, uh, pay to put that stuff up there. We think then that that's a smart role for government because markets work, but they work according to rules. And right now the rules are wacky. Uh, you get to, uh, the carbon is off the books. You can dump as much carbon as you want to. It doesn't cost you anything, but it might cost us the planet. That's a, that's a market failure. And so government has to step in. We believe that once you align the, the make the rules make sense, then technology, innovation, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, invention will then begin to flow in the right direction and solve the problem. Let me just quickly also point you to Center for American Progress did a study called uh, Green Recovery. And we talk about investing uh, in a stimulus program that actually points us where we need to go toward a low carbon economy. Um, and there's a, often a mistake about thinking about this as if these are sort of government subsidized jobs. What we're really talking about is exactly what Van just talked about. This is the biggest market failure in human history. Global warming is the biggest externality that the economy has ever produced. Um, and so what we're talking about is smart investments to build the infrastructure so that we can build markets and entrepreneurship and, and, and real functioning local economies on a platform that sustains real productivity and real health over the long term. So, um, and a couple, couple more questions, yeah. Adam Siegel, energy consensus. One of the things that's frequently said is that uh, in this world is that those who can afford to be energy e efficient can afford to be energy, in or those who can afford energy efficiency can be afford to be energy inefficient. Those who most need energy efficiency can't afford it. And then that also is true at societal levels frequently. How do we spark the national discussion when, yet again today, I heard on, on going into the office, heard two different reports of school systems saying they, they're getting rid of all their building programs, they don't have any money, that's what they're going to defer. How do we get, I mean, this is what this is all about. How do we get the national discussion back to, you know, the energy efficiency from our individual lives to the community? I mean, I, I, think, I think that we're moving there. I mean, I think that, you know, we, part of the reason that the conversation has sagged so much is because we frankly just haven't had the, the, the national leadership, uh, you know, frankly from the White House to say, as the president-elect is now saying, there's some things that are just not on the table uh, uh, to, uh, you know, he says, you know, some investments we just have to make, and we're going to make them. And I think you're going to see a, a, a rise of green Keynesianism, for lack of a better term. Uh, a, 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 the view that government does have to play a smart role, especially counter-cyclical role when you have a depression. Spend, even deficit spending to kind of get, you know, shorten the, the, the recession. But to now do it in a smart way where the inf investments that we're making are to green up uh, the economy. I think, we're, I think this, this, this panel's a part of it. I think we're going to move in that direction. And uh, an energy is a regressive cost. It, it, it affects poor people the most. Um, that's all, often an argument used talking about energy prices, about dealing with, with the impacts of carbon. 
but it's actually even more relevant when you talk about energy and efficiency. And uh, tolerating a society that's incredibly wasteful of energy is a very, very regressive policy. It hurts for, poor people first and worst. And having smart public policies that make it affordable to retrofit our schools for local governments to help low-income homeowners cut their energy bills, these sorts of things, very, very, very smart and very progressive policies. I didn't actually yeah. answer your question, and I'm sorry about that. You asked for an example. Uh, sorry about that. Um, just two quick things. City of Berkeley. Uh, decided to create green assessment districts and, and let people essentially uh, pool their money uh, to, uh, to, to get uh, solar panels up en masse at the neighborhood level and pay it back on their property taxes over time. That's a smart role for government. Um, so, so the property taxes could then be a vehicle by which people were able to pay off their uh, collectively purchased solar panels over time. Uh, the, the mayor of Chicago uh, decided that what he was going to do was put up solar panels all over Chicago, but he wasn't going to put up one solar panel that wasn't made in Chicago. So instantly, people, you know, if you wanted to sell solar panels in Chicago, you had to go set up shop there and do local hire. Well, that then created spin-off industries in, in fine glass, et cetera. So there are very smart things that government can do that not are, you're not only about spending you know, a lot of money, though we need to do that, but also are, are using the power of purchasing and other things. We can, we can talk about it later. I just wanted to, I realize I didn't answer your question. I guess uh, we running long time. Way in, in the back, maybe I've been biased toward people in the front of the room. I apologize for that. Yeah, we got here first. <laughs> oh. oh, no, I was... Yeah, hey, well, you, you, why don't you both why ask the question? Then? Yeah, okay. <laughs> we can share. <laughs> Steve Brown, also uh, an Oakland native. I think we hey. share the same mind on a lot of things. That's good. West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the issues that uh, we've been bringing up is energy production, but also it seems to me fuel is a very big issue. A lot of people can't afford to live in the city, so they move out to the suburbs and even farther out. A lot of people commute from suburbs to the city, and that burning of fuel or some other form of transportation seems to be needed in order to clean up the air and, and have this sort of you know, green revolution, as they say. Uh, maybe not from suburb to country or country to city, but from suburb to city or within cities. Uh, do you have any ideas on how we can improve that? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think mass transit is going to be an important part. I think the uh, is it the transportation? What's what's the transportation bill that's up for reauthorization? Uh, I think that it's time for us to stop thinking about the environment as a checkbox. Um, certainly, that is a big problem that I see. In terms of taking advantage of the opportunity, people think, "Oh, I'm 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 green. I guess I mean I'm for healthcare and uh, the uh, environment and uh, being nice to people and you know." And so it's like this checkbox, you know, of things that we're for. It's time to take that checkbox and turn it into a lens that we look at everything through, right? The Transportation Reauthorization Act can be greened up, right? We can, we can actually create a lot of incentive. And that process for mass transit as opposed to more and more sprawl. Um, you can take that green lens and look at every part of the federal budget. It's not just, you know, there's some energy bill somewhere. Every dollar that the federal government spends is either going to be accelerating the problem or accelerating the solution. And so, uh, not it, so transit's going to be a piece of it, but I think the farm bill uh, should be a, a piece of it. We can walk all the way through every area now because we have such a massive transition to make. Every federal dollar should accelerate this transition. And, and let me just add one point to that. In, in this moment of economic recovery, when people are talking about places to invest, we have a situation right now where we've got 300 
uh, transit projects that have been approved that are ready to go in communities all around the country. And the reason they're not getting built is because we're not actually following through with a federal match that would enable all of those investments and give consumers, give uh, workers uh, choices as they move around their community. Um, so we really need to think about this as an opportunity to invest fundamentally in infrastructure. And this is going to be the last question, and then, and then I'll give Van just a chance to close. Um, and Van will be around here for a little while afterward, and he's going to be uh, signing his book. Um, and I hope you'll all pick up a copy. It's a, it's a really good read, uh, and it's a very, very important story for our time. So, Ruth Kaplan from Washington, D.C. with the Alliance for Democracy. Hooray. Um, and my question is, uh, you've talked about part of the solution that's very capital intensive. The transmission grid is very capital intensive. T. Boone Pickens gets real excited about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing you're talking about, though, is the jobs for inner city people. Yes. And of course, this is something that was talked about back in the 70s. Too late. Do remember this. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, uh, but my question, my question for you is who is going to own these businesses mm -hmm. in the inner city? And if they're not just going to be owned by large corporations providing some jobs for people, um, how would you actually see uh, transferring uh, uh, capital to um, perhaps you know, locally owned businesses, cooperative businesses, you know, but businesses where the capital is in the inner city? That's good. Well, uh, I, I think that the, you, you kind of put your, your finger right on, I think, the, the, the key issue here, which is that the, the, the transition to a green economy uh, is going to create work, wealth, and health uh, for somebody. The question is, how do we make sure that transition creates it for everybody or for large numbers of people? So there are different scenarios where you, you can actually beat global warming. Uh, but you still have an awful lot of poverty and an awful lot of people out of work. I mean, you know, you know, I guess you could have some like little carbon-sucking robot that could just go around and then you haven't changed anything in society. What we're trying to say is that, again, to come back to the original point, uh, when you have a breakdown in your life, uh, you know, you get dumped. You get, you know, right after the breakup, you know, you, know, you kind of cry, feel bad, but then. That next weekend, maybe you go to the gym, right? You say, oh, I'm going to stop smoking. You know, I'm going to, why? Because once you, once you make a big breakup, a big change in your life, it's easier then to make other changes. Well, we're about to break up with oil, uh, whether we want you or not. Uh, and so we may as well break up with some discrimination and some poverty and some, some division uh, and come together and fix a thing. And I also just want to say, lest somebody mishear me on this point, this is not just a vision for the United States. God bless India and China. I'm starting to be very concerned about this, this resentment almost against them. Uh, we want those economies to do well. They have hundreds of millions of people in the most shocking kind of poverty. We want them to come out of poverty. But we don't want them to have to leave their communities leave their families, leave their language groups, and crowd themselves into mega cities to make crap for us to get out of poverty, okay? We have a better vision than that for our sisters and brothers in Asia. They should be able to have green, local, sustainable communities where they grow those local economies and, and power up in a clean way, and we should do the same thing and share technologies and, and, and help each other and have a global partnership 
for a green growth agenda. Uh, but uh, we are not mad and should not be mad at uh, any of our sister and brother countries around the world that are trying to move their people out of poverty. But I think we've got a better way to do it than the model that just collapsed. Thank you very much.